0: Welcome to GovInnovator. I'm Andy Feldman. The topic today is impact evaluation 101. In other words, how to judge if your program or initiative is having a positive impact. Our guest is David Evans from the World Bank. Here's a clip.
1: I've met with many government officials who believe ex-ante that people will reject a randomized controlled trial because they'll feel it's unfair, because they'll feel that the most deserving individual should receive the program. In fact, in many communities there are far more individuals deserving of programs than we can serve with our programs. And in that case, I have found time and time again in country across country that individuals appreciate a lottery in which everyone gets a fair shot at the program. Participation in the program isn't based on who you know. It's not based on how quickly you got your application in. Everyone who's eligible gets a fair shot.
0: Is the program that my organization runs having a positive impact? It's a question about which organizational leaders may want hard evidence, either to better understand how to improve the results of their program or to satisfy authorizers or funders who are asking for evidence. Either way, how can you determine the impact of your program and which strategies may sound useful but are unlikely to produce accurate answers? To get a basic 101 of the topic, we're joined by David Evans. He's a senior economist at the World Bank and the co-author with Bruce Weidick of a recent post on the bank's Development Impact blog on this topic. Dave, welcome. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. So start us off by telling us about the concept of impact. In everyday usage when we say the impact of a program, one might think of simply looking at what the program produced. But impact in the context of rigorous evaluation means something different. Tell us about that.
1: Certainly. When we talk about rigorous evidence, Impact means the causal effect that a program has on an outcome that we care about. So there are two parts to that. The first part is an outcome that we care about. Like you said, with a lot of programs, we might just measure what it produces. For example, if we have a program that trains teachers in a new way to teach mathematics, and we train 500 teachers, we might count those teachers that we trained and call it a day and say, yay, we trained 500 teachers. That's a success. But in the end, we only care about training teachers because we care about children learning math better. And so in that case, an actual outcome would be whether or not students are actually learning math more effectively, whether they have better math scores or more confident in math. So we should track whether the teachers got trained, since it's unlikely that the students will do better if that training doesn't happen. But the impact evaluation measures impacts. It measures whether the outcome we care about changes. You can imagine another example of a food stamps program that provides assistance for families to get food. And we might be tempted to say this program was a success because we benefited 50,000 families. And it's true, that means the program is in fact functioning. But it doesn't tell us whether the program has the impact that we desire. Because what we really care about, the reason that we want to provide this benefit to households, is to improve nutrition for parents and children and increase food security so people aren't skipping meals. So those are the impacts that we would care about. So the first part is an outcome that we care about. And the second part is a causal impact. So usually on days when I use an umbrella, my shoes get wet. Now, I don't think anyone would argue that an umbrella is causing my shoes to get wet. I use an umbrella on rainy days, and those are days when the ground is wet, and my shoes get wet. So that's a correlation. And when we talk about the impact of a program, we're very careful to look at what the causal impact, so what the program is actually leading to directly. So those two pieces, an outcome we care about, and the causal impact is how we get to the actual impact of a program when we're talking about rigorous evidence.
0: An example of what you just said to me is a job training program. If you just look at outcomes, those outcomes may improve over time, like employment rates of participants, just because the economy is strengthening. Or they actually may decline over time because the economy is weakening. So impact evaluation is separating out what the program is affecting and what is being affected by other
1: factors. That's exactly right. And there's a great example of exactly what you're describing. So to take an example from outside of the United States, but which applies to our programs here, uh, in Nicaragua, the government gave out a grant to extremely poor families just to help them meet their basic food needs and the like. And they examined the impact of that grant, what had happened to incomes, an outcome we care about, about a year later. And they found that incomes had actually gone down for these households and so at first glance it seems like the program was a failure but in fact coffee prices had gone down dramatically during that year so all households in Nicaragua had dropped in income significantly and the households that had received the grant had actually been protected their incomes had dropped a little bit but not nearly as much as other households so the program was in fact a success but Without having a sense of what would have happened in the absence of the program, we wouldn't have known that.
0: Dave, you note in your blog piece that a few common ways that organizations try to estimate the impact of their programs generally won't generate a valid measure of impact. Tell us what those are and why they're likely to produce wrong answers.
1: So there are two extremely common ways that organizations attempt to measure the impact of their programs and often, maybe even almost always, deliver a flawed estimate of the impact. So one is the before-after comparison. So essentially we say we're going to look at household incomes and we've got a program that is intended to improve household incomes, say a job training program, and we compare household incomes at the beginning of the program and at the end. So in that case, if incomes have gone up 10%, we might be tempted to say this job training program led to a 10% increase in household incomes. The problem is, as you just pointed out, it may be that it was a good year for the economy. And in that case, all household incomes may have gone up 10%. It may have had nothing to do with the job training program. I evaluated a program in Tanzania where the government gave out uh, a welfare payment to low-income households, and we found that food consumption went up significantly in these households. But then when we looked at other households, we found that their incomes had gone up as well. Their food consumption had gone up because it was a good couple of years for the Tanzanian economy. And so just comparing before and after mixes up the impact of the program with all kinds of other things that are happening in the economy, in people's 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 lives in society, it can almost never give us a true impact uh, of the program. Another really common way to try to measure a program is comparing participants to non-participants. And so for example, going back to our job training program example, we might be tempted to compare low-income households that sign up for the job training program to low-income households that don't sign up to the job training program. Now what we might find is that after a year, those households that signed up indeed have higher incomes. Now the problem is the kinds of people that sign up for a job training program tend to be different from the kinds of people that don't. So for example, people that sign up for a job training program might be the more entrepreneurial people. They might be people who are really looking for opportunities to get out of their bad economic situation. So for those people, even if you didn't have a job training program, they may have found some other way to improve their situation. So if we just compare them to less entrepreneurial people who are less ambitiously looking for opportunities, what we're doing is we're mixing up the effect of the job training program with the effect of just being a more entrepreneurial, a more go-getter type of person. So again, it's not the impact of the job training program. It's some combination. And unfortunately, there's just no way for us to separate out those effects facts. There's no way for us to know how much of an increase in income is due to the job training and how much is it due to just the characteristics and the personalities of these individuals. And so ultimately, that sort of participant, non-participant comparison ends up being deeply flawed as well.
0: Shifting gears now to ways that organizations and programs can generate a valid counterfactual, in other words, an accurate estimate of what would have occurred without the program the fancy word for that is counterfactual so that they can create a accurate measure of impact you present three approaches the first is using a lottery in other words a randomized experiment we've talked about that before in the podcast but give us a quick overview
1: so let's go back to this example Say we want to find out whether a program that provides job training to adults is effective. When we first roll out the program, we have the capacity to provide training for about 100 adults. It's a pilot program. But in fact, we have 200 eligible applicants. So one fair way to decide amongst these eligible applicants who gets the training is a lottery. So 100 lottery winners participate in the program and 100 other eligible participants go on a wait list to potentially participate in the program later on. Lotteries do something kind of exciting for impact evaluation. If you have a large group of people, say 200 applicants, then the 100 winners will look on average about the same as the 100 people on the waitlist. You'll have about the same proportion of women in both groups. You'll have about the same proportion of people with a high school degree in both groups. So if you Do a lottery and you have 100, 200, 300 people participating in this lottery, then you see that the people who win the lottery end up looking just about the same before the job training program as the people who don't win. So then if we look at those same people one year, two years later, we can say that any differences between them are really due to the job training program. One of the other things about the lottery is that it even helps us make sure that the groups are very similar on the characteristics that we cannot see. And so you're likely to get just about the same proportion of people who are comfortable with the healthcare system, comfortable with applying for a job in the group of winners as you are in the group of losers. So that's why randomization really gives us our best bet for an unbiased true estimate of the impact of our program.
0: And we should note before we go on that the sample size needed to get an accurate estimate of impact will vary depending on the circumstances.
1: That's absolutely right. And so I threw out the number 100, for example. And if you have a program where you expect to see sizable impacts on people's incomes or on student test scores, then that might be a good uh, sample, 100 participants and 100 uh, comparison. On the other hand, if you're looking at a program where realistically and looking at past similar programs, we expect more modest impacts. That doesn't mean the program isn't a success. It just means that the impact might be a little bit smaller, say a 2 to 5 percent increase in incomes. Then in that case, we might actually need a significantly larger sample in order to do a lottery and capture the true impact of the program.
0: Right. A second strategy to generate a valid measure of impact is an eligibility cutoff. This is so-called regression discontinuity design. For people who are new to this, tell us what that's about.
1: So this regression discontinuity design, and I apologize for that technical name that it has. But for regression discontinuity design, let's consider a merit-based scholarship program. So we wanna give scholarships to the children who perform the best, and we want to see whether that increases their college graduation rates. So, for example, the scholarship is based on a test that the students take. Now, if you compare the students who excel at the test and get 100% and their college graduation rates to the students who do terribly on the test, then obviously we're going to have these same problems that we talked about when comparing participants and non-participants. The students who got 100% on the test probably would have graduated college even without the merit-based scholarship, and the children who did terribly on the test probably wouldn't have anyway. However, let's say that you need 70% to get this merit-based scholarship. In that case, let's say we compare the young person who gets 71% on the test to the young person who gets 69% on the test. So those two youths are very similar. Their test scores are almost identical. Their school performance is almost identical. The only difference was just two points on a test. And yet one of them gets a scholarship and one of them doesn't. So if we compare lots of youths on just on either side of that cutoff, then we're comparing two groups of people that are very, very similar before the program. And so then when we look at their college graduation rates four, five, or six years later, we can be much more confident that the differences between these groups is in fact due to these merit scholarships.
0: It might be helpful to point out to our listeners who are new to impact evaluation that regression discontinuity design is an example of a quasi-experimental design, a quasi-experiment. Maybe you can say a little bit about that, Dave.
1: That's exactly right. A lottery is an example of what we just call a pure experiment. But a regression discontinuity design, if it's implemented well, is a quasi-experiment. Even though there's no lottery, if it's done right and we have people close to that cutoff and we're comparing them, it actually comes very close in accuracy to what an experiment can do. Now, I'll say one thing that differentiates these two. So with a lottery, when we have some winners and we have some losers, what that tells you is, on average, people who participate in this program have incomes that are this much higher or have college graduation rates that are this much higher. With the regression discontinuity design, remember that we're just comparing people who barely passed the test to people who barely failed the test. So that doesn't necessarily tell us what the impact of the program would be if we gave merit-based scholarships to much lower-performing students. It tells us what the impact of the program is for people right around that cutoff. Now, that said, that's the right answer if what we're thinking about is potentially expanding that program a little bit further down the test score distribution. And so, if currently the cutoff is 70% and we're thinking about expanding it to 65%, then understanding the impact of the program right around that cutoff is really useful.
0: So the third strategy that programs or organizations can use to try and generate a valid measure of impact is a little bit challenging to explain but um, it uses before and after data for both participants and non-participants this is the so-called differences in differences approach tell us about that
1: so with differences in differences we say okay Just comparing before and after is a problem because lots of other things may change, not related to the program. And just comparing participants and non-participants is a problem because participants are inherently different. Maybe they're poorer on the one hand, maybe they're more entrepreneurial on the other hand. But consider a job training program intended to increase incomes. If we compare how much incomes change, both for those who are in the program and for those who are outside of the program, then we're combining the before and after, so how much the income has changed over time, with the participant non-participant. If both of these groups are affected equally, for example, by changes in the economy, if everyone's income is going up about 10%, even without a job training program, then comparing these two differences will give us an accurate estimate of the impact of the program. So in that case, we might say, Everyone in this state is seeing an increase in income of about 5% this year, but the people who participated in the job training program saw an increase of 8%. So in that case, we'd say the impact of that job training program is that 8% minus the 5% that everyone enjoyed. So about a 3% increase in income. Now, in many cases, that assumption might not hold up. It could be that on average, everyone in the state is experiencing a 5% increase in income. But in fact, the very poorest people are seeing stagnant incomes. And people who are a little bit less poor are seeing some growth. In that case, the difference in differences approach may not be as effective. It won't give us an accurate impact. But if everyone's incomes are rising at about the same rate, then it can be another effective quasi-experimental method.
0: A final question for you, which is what are some of the factors that would lead, should lead a program to choose one of these three strategies over another? And just as background, one of the themes of this podcast has been in terms of impact evaluation, always choose the most rigorous method that's possible, that's feasible, that makes sense for that situation. That seems to be in line with the message in your blog piece as well.
1: That's absolutely right. So, the method that is most likely to give us a true estimate of the impact is randomization. I have worked with many governments over the last decade and a half, uh, exploring the possibility of implementing randomized trials of new government programs. And often people say, it's impossible. We can't randomize for this reason, that reason, or the other. But in fact, there are many opportunities to randomize that initially people don't realize. If you have a program that you're expanding into new schools or communities, but not all schools or all communities in your entire catchment area, then you can randomize which schools are initially going to get it or which health centers are initially going to get it. If you have more applicants than you can serve for a job training program or for some other benefit program, then one reasonably fair way to decide who receives the benefit is to randomize and that way you can have a lottery and gauge the true impact of the program. So there are opportunities to randomize often, even when we might not think of them at first. That said, Regression discontinuity, in the case where randomization is impossible, can be a good alternative in any case specifically where program benefits are assigned based on some sort of index. So the example we talked about was a merit-based scholarship based on a test score. So if the benefits are based on a test score, then regression discontinuity is a great method. If we have a program like a welfare benefit that's based on income and everyone below a certain income receives a benefit and everyone above that income does not, then regression discontinuity can be a very effective approach. There's a nice evaluation of a teacher training program in Chicago that showed that schools that overall attained below a certain score received additional benefits to carry out teacher professional development, and they used a regression discontinuity to evaluate the impact of that program because there was a score which they were able to use to assign the benefit. So anytime a benefit is assigned based on an index or a score, regression discontinuity is a possibility. Finally, difference in differences, which can work in some cases, although I would say is the weakest of these three, that can be effective if you can't do either of the other two methods, but you do have both before and after data for both your participants and non-participants.
0: Dave, I said final question, but I just thought of one more, which is you've noted that randomized control trials are the most rigorous approach, but there are many concerns, or I might say misconceptions, associated with that approach. Tell me which ones, which misconceptions you've run into.
1: So there are a number of misconceptions around RCTs. The first being that it's impossible to do a lottery when oftentimes we can. A second is about the costs. In fact, any rigorous impact evaluation, any good impact evaluation, requires the collection of data or the use of administrative data. The only reason that people think that randomized controlled trials may cost more is because they require collection of data on a comparison group. But the fact of the matter is any good evaluation requires data from a comparison group. So a difference in differences evaluation is going to cost just as much as a randomized evaluation, but it's much less likely to give us a confident answer. Another misnomer around randomized control trials can be that people won't accept them. And so I've met with many government officials who believe ex-ante that people will reject a randomized controlled trial because they'll feel it's unfair, because they'll feel that the most deserving individual should receive the program. In fact, in many communities, there are far more individuals deserving of programs than we can serve with our programs. And in that case, I have found time and time again in country across country that individuals appreciate a lottery in which Everyone gets a fair shot at the program. Participation in the program isn't based on who you know. It's not based on how quickly you got your application in. It, everyone who's eligible gets a fair shot. And so lotteries can often be the fairest and most acceptable way to implement a program, allowing a man- randomized control trial, even though beforehand government officials didn't think it would be possible.
0: David Evans from the World Bank. Dave, thanks for giving us a very useful 101 about impact evaluation. It's great to be with you, Andy. Thank you very
1: much.